Tonight's the uh, second talk on the third foundation. And uh, it's a very important foundation because it's looking at the mind itself, the formations of mind. When you look at the mind, you look at the formations of mind. And uh, we have worked our way through the body and through feelings, not emotions, but the pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral feelings that are intoned in each experience. And now we have come to the mind itself. And the Buddha is the sutta. Please leave that light on. Yeah, thank you. It's for the camera. Uh, the Buddha uses a refrain over and over again uh, to sort of get our attention. And he says, this is not a quote, but he essentially goes through a whole bunch of different states of mind and their opposite and says, the monk or nun will discern when he or she is happy. The monk or nun will discern when he or she is sad. The monk or nun will discern when he or she is confused. The monk or nun will discern when she, he or she are clarity. And he goes through a whole list of all these different states of mind. And uh, the list is, of course, there are many states of mind in which he doesn't speak to, but it's enough so that you get the sense that it's all states of mind. You don't say, oh, he left out sleepiness, and <laughs> he's supposed to be inclusive. Uh, and what he's doing is doing something very important. He's not giving us any wiggle room. He's not giving us any wiggle room. And this, I find that this particular paragraph is one of the most important components of this sutta or of any of his teachings. And I hope, even though it doesn't say much, it just says, in language, it doesn't say much. It says, discern when it's this way, discern when it's that. Discern when it's this way, see that. Be aware when it's this way, be aware when it's that. And it doesn't seem to reach a conclusion about what you're supposed to do about the awareness or, or any of the assertions of useful means or skillful means that we can tamper with the different formations to get them more to our liking. He simply lays out all of the states of mind and says, notice, be aware. That's all. And it's, but what, that doesn't leave me to do anything. We cry. That doesn't, that doesn't give me an activity. That doesn't give me a posture or, a, or a, something to work with here. And in fact, you get a sense that through this repetition, he's taking away just that. He's taking away all activity. He's taking away us, you and I, egoically. The sense of self is formed in the activity to do something with something. And he has shown the mind, he's opened the mind like a coconut and taken away the very thing that we assert as the controller and the uh, practitioner within that mind. And he doesn't give us any formulation for establishing a better mind. He doesn't say, well, assert influence in this direction and foster and cultivate these qualities. He simply says awareness. That's all. 
and it takes us completely out of it. Now we, we like to weigh in. We like to say, well, you know, this is kind of like this state of mind. I hope that comes back my next sitting, and when it doesn't, I'm a little disappointed, but I'm wise enough to know that I can't get it back, so I will wait patiently for its return, <laughs> and on and on. We weigh in. Even subtly, there is a judger in there. There is somebody who is lying in wait, waiting to do something that can be, uh, can bathe him or herself within the comforts of the mind. But the Buddha seems to be pointing to a deep, deep acceptance of our humanity here. Not an improved humanity. He's not pointing towards character improvement. He's pointing to the deep acceptance of humanity as it is. I love that. Because that's, that's like a, a road that goes 50 miles and then stops. And it lets you off nowhere. There's nowhere, you, you're in a, there's nowhere. There's no town at the end of it, there's nothing. It just stops. And that's what he's done here. After all the preponderance and all of the ways of working with different physical sensations and feelings, he takes us on this road and then he just says, awareness, that's all. Now, he's taking us beyond judgment. This deep acceptance of our humanity, this, you can feel it. When there is just awareness of, when there's just awareness, just this, just abiding awareness. There's this deep love for the human, for the condition itself. It's hard to say it non-dualistically, but awareness is love. And so when there is awareness, there's this deep abiding awareness, there is this deep love for what is transpiring. Not dualistically, but within the very formations themselves. So he is not suspending our judgment. He's not holding our judgment in abeyance. He's not asking us to just for a momentary pause in judgment. He's taking us out of judgment completely. He's removing judgment. This, then he is taking us beyond judgment, out of the reach of judgment. And he's showing us fundamentally, you see, what I really appreciate is that he's going to the fundamentals of the practice in this one paragraph. He's just, he's going to the absolute fundamentals of the practice. He's showing us, which I will elaborate on for the rest of this, but he is essentially showing us why we frame the practice the way we do. Why we say, uh, observe, with allowance and relaxation, uh, without, with non-judgmental acceptance, why we frame the practice, why we frame the techniques, why we sit still. He's, get, he's showing us the underlying principle to all of the assertions and practices and techniques that we use. Now, we need that. I think we get too far from the fundamentals. We, don't, and when we just practice the fundamentals, we don't understand how they tie in to the deeper aspects of his teaching. And so we get confused. And so most of us, when we practice the fundamentals, think the fundamentals are sort of the whole context of the practice and that 
if I do metta, then that self-love that I'm generating feels so good that this must, this is a practice in itself and a completion in itself. And he's saying, no, the practices, all of these techniques that we use, in their end, stop. Stop. They serve a purpose. They allow us to uh, to balance some discordant energies in ourselves. They allow us to get over different feelings of inward hostility and damaged psyches. They allow us to get into onto a level, level playing field when we can deal with these, these states and formations of mind. But then, then what? Is that the end? Is that the, the leveling play, level playing field? Is that the end? So you have to know what the underlying principle is in this. And we'll come to it. I'm, I'm just baiting you at the moment. <laughs> because once you understand the underlying principle, all of the practices, everything we do, make complete, total sense only in relationship to this underlying principle. And so what is he saying when he's saying, okay, ju just awareness, just abiding awareness. He says, he's actually showing us a different context than the formations themselves. The formations, the mental formations, all of the different mind states that we have, the happiness, the sadness, the confusions, the ignorance, all of that stuff that goes on, and the content and the thoughts and the emotions and all of that, the feelings, all of that barrage that's happening, that commentary that's considerable, all of that is we lose, our, we lose our way within that. We try to go in there and make it sound okay to us, to make it smooth it out, to make it likable, to shine it up a little bit, to make it a kind voice that's coming through, a commentary of softness, of gentleness. We infuse our energy into the wrong area of practice. We infuse our energy into the formations themselves. But he's saying the awareness, that which holds the formations, the awareness, the abiding awareness that holds all things. This is where this sutta is taking us now. It's taking us not into the implications of what this particular state of mind means in terms of my spiritual and how many more states I have to, in the cultivations of seven factors and all, it's not, he's, he's shutting all that down. The road ends here, the road in here. That's why I think this is a, a compromised sutta because people aren't taking it with the depth that I think it truly intends. What sees this is an important because I'm talking tonight about the undivided mind. What sees is itself not divided, right? What holds, what holds all things, what holds the mind is undivided. And so as we begin to be, get a sense of where this sutta is taking us, and it's not towards the beautification of the product, but towards, towards something that is uh, uh, formless, that is available at all times, but formless, but isn't as 
easily noticed because of its formlessness, as the formations are, we suddenly have to back up a little bit and reassess what we've been doing in our practice. Has our practice been engaged sufficiently so that we can not so much invest our energy in the forms and expressions of the practice, but in what actually is the life of the practice and the life of each thing is the awareness itself. Now that's a very different, so how, what do I do now, you see what, but you can listen to all the instructions that you've ever been given. And all the instructions, ultimately, if they're skillful instructions, should intone a sense of not doing within our practice, ultimately. Of not jumping in and trying to untangle or argue or resist the formations of mind, but absolutely letting the mind be as it is. I remember when I, uh, it was, I was years into my practice. I was actually a monk in Asia when I came to, I said, oh my God, don't do anything to the mind. Leave the mind alone. Could it be that simple? And I kept thinking I, there's some, something wrong there because I had been told to do so much that it just seemed like to have reached the end, to, to have reached that conclusion somehow doesn't honor all the things that I've been doing. And it was a, it was a, I had to mull over that for some time before I really understood that that's exactly what this is meant to do. Now, I'm going to talk about the underlining principle, which I have not gotten to yet. But this principle is, when I talk about the Dharma truths that come from this principle, every one of you will recognize immediately the Dharma truths that come from the principle because we practice those. We teach those, I instruct those, every meditation course intones those and encourages those. But again, if we don't connect what the underlining truth is to what we're doing, we'll get lost in the doing and we'll forget the underlining truth. So now I'm going to talk to you about uh, what this underlining truth is. You and I, we do not have a mind. The mind holds us. We are not separate from the mind having a mental experience. Take this in. The sense of me is part of the mental processes and not separate from it. You and your mind are not two things, two separate things. What seems to be you doing something to the mind is the mind efforting itself. And a mind divided with you acting upon it is the definition of suffering. There's no way for you to get the upper hand with the mind. 
And there's no better way to get trapped in duality than by trying to get out of it. The mind is a closed system. Now let's just sit back here and consider what was just said. And to understand our practice in light of just what was said. I actually remember when this insight came to me, I was in a rocking chair. You know, it was one of those, oh, I am part of the mental process. I keep thinking myself outside of the mental process and acting upon the mental process as if I were having the experience of the mental process. But the experience of me having that experience is part of the mental process. Oh, I just have reframed it. I just have framed it too short. I've framed it too narrowly. It has to be opened up here. The mind has to be opened up so that it includes where I'm taking a position outside of it. Now, if we understood that, which is, this is the truth. Now, it's interesting because scientists are getting very close to this. I think I have mentioned to you, I was listening to a, a radio lab uh, series on NPR about who am I? And one neurologist said that, well, there isn't any sense of self in there, except every neuron firing carries a, a partial image of oneself. And when you have a billion neurons firing, all those billion partial images form, consolidate into a sense of self. And so it's, he said it's easier to, it's as easy to think of yourself as a billion a billion separate things as it is to think of yourself as one thing. But, you see, that's fine. That's all... But wh what does that imply for us? If we under... Okay, so that's... If the implication is I'm not outside the mind, which is what that just said, that I'm inside the mind, what's the implication? for unity and separation. What is the, it's a conclusion now. Since the only way I see separately is to pretend I'm outside the mental process, and now that I know I'm not, that solves the unity question. It has to be unified. This isn't an argument anymore. Never was for some of us who have seen, but for many people it seems like some kind of tension. And that also settles an awful lot about my practice. Because if I'm outside of the mind, having an experience of the mind, then I'm going to be weighing in on what that experience is like and whether it's an enjoyable experience or not. I'm going to weigh in judgmentally upon what I see and perceive the mind is doing and try to rearrange it to my advantage. Why wouldn't I? Because I'm outside of it. I want the best possible experience of this thing as, as possible. In fact, I can't want anything else but that. Now we begin to see a very divergent path here. Because if the path is taught as you being outside of it, even from the beginning, 
then there are a whole lot of ways that you could improve this method and this meditation. And many of the strategies and instructions that are unskillful really allow you to do just that. But a skillful instruction would be look at what you believe is outside of the mind. Just look at it. See if you can catch what you think of is outside of the mental process. See if you can catch a flavor of it. And see if it's true. See if it's in fact has a position outside of what the mind is doing. Or is it a position in the mind that stakes its claim outside? we begin to see that the sense of self is a thought believed. And that thought is occurring is a mental phenomenon. And every time we believe it, it seems as if the position for that belief is somehow external to the movement of the thoughts and other emotions that are going on around it. If you think in terms of separation, you will practice. We will practice in terms of separation, and we will per perpetuate separation. This is all in the sutta. This is an implied dharma from the sutta. Somebody that is going to take the literal translation of that sutta, well then, okay, I'll discern when I'm happy, I'll discern when I'm sad, I'll discern when I'm and will, will make themselves an activity based upon all the discernments that they have to do, not seeing what the implication of what this language is supposed to be pointing towards. What's the underlying principle? We should be curious about this, not frightened. This is an amazing, wow. So how, why is it that I think of myself outside, and is that so? Let me just be quiet so that awareness can discern the part that seems to indicate, seems to take a position outside. And this two separate, distinct forms of practice, we can hear in the view of the instruction. So when you listen to instructions, listen to them and see whether they're putting you as a position, in the position of someone who's outside the mind, having the experience of the mind, or someone, or the someone is part of that mental process itself. See how those instructions are offered and your interpretation of them, of course, is important because that can always go astray. But then you begin to get a sense of whether these instructions are wise or unwise, useful or unuseful. And instructions which establish you as the organizer of your journey, as the guide, as the keynote speaker, as the master guide, you have to question. 
instructions that put you at subtly at odds with what the mind is doing, that give you some way to sort of bridge the difference or compromise the difference or take the heat off the difficulty has to be questioned. Instructions which assert that my efforts alone will advance my spiritual journey. My efforts alone? Where's the my? The mind influencing itself as if it had the whole picture. How can one part of the mind perceive the whole? And any instruction which implies that you can effort your way out of separation, question. Any instructions that reinforce the sense of mastery, question. And so, as these forms are heard and questioned, there are truths, dharma truths, that each of us, in the course of whatever way we have been practiced, have found our way towards. And these dharma truths have worked. We may have lost the connection to the underlying principle that I just stated, but we know somehow these Dharma truths work. Now I want to bring some of these Dharma truths into the picture and not lose connection with the underlying principle. And you'll see, of course they work, because this is true. Of course this is true. They won't just be some kind of statement of wisdom that I jotted down once and I proved to be effective. But we'll see what it is, where's the tie-in to the teaching is. So the first truth I would like to just explain explore is the more we avoid something, the more we ensure its return. All right? It, most of you know that, don't you? That you don't get by with turning your back on something. But why has that worked for you? I mean, why is that true for you? If, if you don't have the underlying principle, it, why? It doesn't, it just seems like some kind of random independent law. But when you understand that the sense of self is an embodied mind, is embodied within mind, then you realize that one part of the mind can't turn away from another part of the mind and expect there to be anything else but rancor. Right? So if a mental phenomena turns away from, says, I don't like that other mental phenomena, that's not going to produce much healing, is it? It's going to produce a lot of tension, a lot of contention between those sharply divided states of mind. And one is going to try to protect, the one that embodies the sense of me is going to try to protect myself from this component part of the mind and what this, whatever I'm afraid of be it anger or fear or sadness or depression or whatever. 
and we realize somehow that it doesn't work. And so when we learn, somehow we learn through just trial and error, really, we learn that we have to kind of shut up and not judge. But we don't bring the whole, all of it in. We have a kind of judgment in abstentia. So we won't actually judge verbally, but an attitude will judge because we haven't understood the principle. We just won't say, I hate this. But everything, but the tension, there's some tension in our body. There's a judgment going on because we haven't included that judgment in the entirety of the mind. The judgment has to be included alongside of what's being judged. When that happens, the judgment can't sustain itself in the judgment because it's not being infused or invested with any energy outside of anything else. See, awareness, which is what our fallback is, that which sees, that which holds all things, doesn't divide all things and doesn't infuse so much more energy in this or less energy in that. It just sees both equally. When both are seen equally, then the judgment has to end because judgment is based upon unequal seeing. Are you having fun? <laughs> Am I going way out there too far and you're going, ah! Well, this is where the sutta takes us. It's beautiful in that way. Separation is caused by exclusivity. Exclude one thing and you'll be separate. You take, because that's the part of the mind that is not being included. So you're going to have two. You get a sense of what Christ meant when he says, be whole like your Father in heaven is whole. And when we find there is suffering, you can just feel the squirming going on in the recalcitrant part of the mind that refuses to suffer or to acknowledge or to fertilely open to the suffering. It tries to find that corner, backing off, doing everything possible and all matter of strategies, which is still mental processes, strategizing is mental processing, to get rid of the suffering that's caused by the strategies. We can't decide not to be angry. I'm not going to ever be angry again. Teacher told me that one time. I'm never going to have anger again. Good luck. <laughs> I wish you well. Just that statement is angry. So we begin to see, right? This law makes perfect sense when we see the underlining principle that everything is mind and that the mind has to be whole in totally inclusive whole or it's fractured and when it's fractured then there are two halves two hemispheres pitted against one another and that creates the sense of me and the problem 
the problem was generated by the aversion towards the acceptance of the other hemisphere. That's what we call a problem. And we try to solve a problem by being aversive to it, which reinforces the distance and the tension to the problem itself. So this, I'm just giving you the basic law of the land, right? I'm just amazed that we've missed it for so long. I don't mean each one of us. I mean as a culture, as a human race. Why isn't this understood? Because it changes everything. And it puts us on a very, very direct course towards complete healing. It's not all fancy. It doesn't have 10,000 things that you need to do. It simply says, stop the argument. See, it takes us out of that frame of reference where I can solve this problem. The sense of I has its own strategies to solve the problem. But it can't, there's no way that a part of the mind can solve the whole of the problem. So it takes us out of that. It immediately shuts down that as an option. And that's why this is so powerful. Because then, literally, there's nothing I can do. Nothing the I can do. There's plenty for awareness. What can awareness do? It can understand. It can invite, it can invite curiosity in that which are, there is aversion towards. Anything that brings the two halves closer, understanding does just that. Understanding in Thai is, the word means entering the heart. So with our not with any strategy. Understanding it doesn't have a strategy to it. it ha it's, it's vulnerable. It's open. It's, it just wants to understand. It wants to open to. You see? That's why that's the only strategy that can heal the hemispheres. See this? All of a sudden, things light up. Oh, he's been talking about understanding for years. Oh, makes sense now. We have to do it that way because any other thing just keeps those two locked in conflict with one another. Seeing the awareness itself, not who sees, but seeing itself. Surrendering the story. Oh, because if I keep a monologue going, that's the very dialogue between me and what I don't like. It's that playing ping pong with the thing through words. In the absence of the words, the two paddles To end 
the ego's rule, we have to take it, we have to take the self out of time. We have to take it out of time. Time is what I want to do about. Anything I want to do about. I have something, I have a problem here. You have a problem, you're going to do something about it. That's time. We have to end time in order for there to be wholeness. Listen to what Christ said. Resist not evil. Why in God's name would he say resist not evil? That sounds like you're you're throwing yourself in the dungeon. Doesn't it make absolute sense from this point of view? That is the resistance of evil that creates the evil. But we're so, we have such faith in the power of our own creation, which is the sense of me in the mind, that we think we can handle everything, including evil. And so the more we try, the more differentiation the evil becomes. More differentiated the evil becomes. And the more delineation there is between me and evil. And therefore, it's just a matter of time between that gravitational pull forcing those sides to do something unskillful. So let me just give you another one. I have there are a whole bunch of these laws that I could go on and on. Maybe on another occasion we'll set a whole course of many talks and we'll do this. We'll, we'll fetter, um, flush them out. But we cannot meet the mind with the same energy it is emitting. In other words, if I'm irritated at my anger, that's not going to get over the anger because the mind is still just a closed system to that irritation. And whether the irritation is on the left hemisphere in called a mental state of anger or on the right hemisphere called me being irritated at it, it still is a closed furnace, right? It's all burning in there. Can't do it. Why can't you do it? Obvious from the underlining principle. Obvious. So if we keep this principle foremost in our practice, and bring all the things we're asked to do in relationship and ask it from the underlying principle whether this makes sense or not, then we'll have a skillful way of conducting and moving our spiritual journey towards a depth, the depth that it, uh, that, is, that it is meant to go. Like control. Okay, I'm not going to control. My breathing, I find myself controlling my breathing. Okay, I'm just going to say I'm not going to control it anymore, which is another form of control. It's another tension. <laughs> it's another tension that I put up about my breathing. So that tension is in the form of control, but it's on the right side of the argument, me, and I just won't control. <laughs> As we try to breathe our way out of control. You see, you genuinely can't care whether you control or not. You absolutely cannot care. That's what surrender is. You surrender your caring about getting out of control. Out of the influence of control. 
another of the Dharma truths that many of us sense, but we don't have any idea of where it comes from, is that we cannot force the mind to bring forth what is hidden. I can't tell you the number of interviews I could eliminate if people understood that. I don't, I don't know what you're talking about emotion. I don't feel any emotions. Where, how can I feel my emotions? Let me, let me go down and get them. <laughs> See what I could do. Or tell me how to forgive myself. I have such, such non-forgiveness. Just please, let, I want to bring up forgiveness. Let me find forgiveness in myself. Can't do it. Can't force anything to the surface. You can't force anything. This thing is not, it's just not built that way. That's not the law with which it works. We can wait patiently. We can relax patiently. We can have an intentionality. And that's about what we can do. And when forgiveness, when the memory of what you want to forgive arises with you, you can sit patiently and open-heartedly with that memory as it's expressing itself. And that's how we arrive at, at forgiveness. There's not a me mechanism in there called forgiveness that suddenly comes and erases the mental structure. It's taking the, f the heat off that ember through the repetition of seeing it and owning it and being honest to it as an experience in one's life. This is what it did without any rationalization or excuses whatsoever and letting that ember burn itself out. And that's why no one wants to go there because it's too hot. But that's how it's done. And over time, the heart opens even to the most egregious fault that you or somebody else abused you through. But it cannot be forced. Forget something. Oh, I forgot. Now let me, what did I just try to, let me, what was it that I was trying to remember? Forget it. You can't, you can't dig it out. It may come, it often does. You just change the subject or release the tension and pew, there it is again. Or if you're my age, it doesn't come. <laughs> That's okay. I'm getting kind of used to it not coming. It's just like, okay, clean slate here. Let's just move in a different direction. I can't feel my emotions. Just take the edge off the contention, the argument, the resistance. I can't feel, just relax, relax. You're not without emotions, I promise you. Just relax. They hold such an edge of fear that you don't want to feel them. Just honoring the fear that you have around your emotions. And that will start dissipating and the emotions will come back on and be seen. And the last one I want to talk about is really the culmination of the entirety of the talk. And that is, and I, I think most of us know this, but you begin to understand it completely when you understand the principle. 
And that is, it's all or nothing. This is not a piecemeal practice. You can't let some of you in and keep some of you out. This isn't, I want the likable parts of me in and none, nothing that even resembles my father, and that's not going to come in. I'm telling you, that is not going to work. You can't close the door on some parts and open the door on the other. This is an all or nothing, all or nothing. We each have an, a personal image ideal. Somebody calls us up and asks us to drive, us, drive them to the airport. It's 2 o'clock in the morning. The cab didn't come for him, and you're the next door neighbor, and you don't want to do it. But you're going to be a good neighbor, right? The resentment is hideous in you as you get in the car and smile at the person as they enter, and you're not honoring the whole. You're not honoring the resentment as well as the feeling of compassion and love for the neighbor. Those are both present. We keep the resentment at bay because we think it undermines the compassion. I just want the compassion side of me, the love side of me, the smile, so that they think I'm the best neighbor in the world. Well, you're not, and you never will be. <laughs> There's a resentment there that, almost ha that has to be included as well. Yes, I didn't want to do this. You don't have to say it, but you have to honor that expression of emotion in yourself so that you see alongside the good neighbor is the devil. <laughs> and you can't bring yourself along in this. You just can't do it. You can, some of us know that and have known that for such a long time, but we keep dragging the corpse of ourselves along. <laughs> We're not willing to cut the final umbilical cord and be done with it here. What do we think the whole mind looks like? It just isn't pitted against itself. Everything changes, and nothing changes. And you can feel it. Where there was tension before, there is aliveness now. Awareness. The, it was... As long as there was the struggle, the identification went towards the struggle because that's where we were invested. Well, you're going to go where you're invested. You're invested, if you're struggling, you're invested in the struggle, I promise you, or you wouldn't struggle. You struggle because you want it. And as soon as you want it, you're going to be invested in that. And so you're going to be front and center on the stage of your wanting and fearing. That's what the second noble truth was all about. But if we can just remember that the whole of the mind, what he's, which is what the Buddha is talking about, he's not talking about, so, not this, not that, or this and that, either way it works. 
no tension, because nothing is pitted against itself. A new life is born. A new life is born from the whole. Not the life that's born from the tension and struggle. That's what we call me. This is the new life that's born. And may we all find our way to it. Can we sit for a minute or two? So how do you sit, you see? How do you sit? Are you front and center in your sitting? Or is there innocence in your sitting? Openness. Those are clear signs of the partitions being removed. And that's why the instructions, good instructions, skillful instructions, will take you to a relaxation, which is the removal of boundaries, which will take you to non-judgment, which is the removal of boundaries, which will take you to the awareness and not investing in what it is that's arising, not trying to have an old experience back again or sustain an experience you are having or anything. Just let the experience go. It's not about the experience. It never was. No spiritual journey is about the experience. You yogis, Hindus, Muslims, Christians, Buddhists, Okay, any questions or comments you might have? Yes, sir. When you get to the point where you're on the edge of that, that unity, um, surrendering to that, that profound center where you give up the self, there's this experience of profound fear that goes with that, of letting go of that self. That seems so much more different, different than the, the struggle between the two hemispheres that you describe. And you only experience that fear when you are at the brink of touching on that So the question is that at, at a certain point, uh, when uh, there's just remnants of the self is still around, oftentimes the mind will bring forth a fear to keep you, you very much intact within that uh, mental frame of reference. 
And the question is, what do you do about the fear? Well, it, it, the self is not something, the self needs a lot of your patience. And as long as the fear is arising and there's a sense of you being formed from that fear, you just have to be patient with that. Be willing to exp experience as much of that, come what may attitude, just is, but you don't try to stop yourself out because that's just forming a new, a new tension in relationship to the mind. You just are as patient with it as you can be. You say, wow, that really got me that time. That was amazing. And it works itself out. It's not something that you work out. You are worked out right? through your patience, through your humility, and through your willingness to continue, to persist, not to turn back. Well, the fear is it. That's it. There's a door of fear there. That's it. Might as well go back and be separate. You see? This isn't, it's the illusion of separateness. It's not the fact of separateness. If it were the fact of separateness, then let's just get on with the fact. But because it's an illusion, I can have forever patience with it. Because what am I being patient with? It's, a, it's an illusion. It's not the truth. And if I, if I just sustain my intention to see the truth, to know the truth, and I will work as best I can with whatever comes in front of me, making it as inclusive as possible, that will will out. That will... the that will win if there's a winning. Okay? So there needs to be some faith other than the faith of your own, you know, I've got to straighten this fear out. Well, you're not going to straighten this fear out because the fear is creating the sense of you in the first place. And as you battle fear, that's the noble warrior, you know, we have to die to this thing, not keep strengthening our biceps, patience. That's why I think the Buddha said patience is the highest form of devotion. You see it? You see it immediately, don't you? When you see, well, of course it needs, it's incredible devotion because it's faith because I can't do it. Now, I don't want to take away energetically what you do need to do. You need to look, you need to understand, you need to be willing to, to admit where you're tense and to look at the areas of your tension to where you turn your back away, where you're not behaving holistically with the mind but are still believing in the tensions of yourself and all of that. All of that requires enormous amount of inward surveillance to see, to understand all of that. Because there will be pockets that, of the deepest sense of personal or historical trauma that will arise, but with patience, they can be gone through. But if we, if we make some kind of judgment in relation to that, or try to sl slam the door shut or seal it off, we will be only partially successful in our resistance and suppression we will be unsuccessful completely in ridding it of anything, but we will think we will have successfully turned it so that it's neutral. It won't be neutral. It will create enormous amount of havoc 
with the tension of that slamming of the door in terms of depression and other forms of fear that will riddle our systems. But we won't blame it on that, so we'll think we're finished with it. But it's better not to do it that way, if we can help it. With the strength of therapists and the work of other healthcare, we can look at some of these difficulties and begin to be accountable to them. Anyone else want to venture a hand? <laughs> yes, sir. You can't ever win against it. That's nicely said. That's exactly, you can't. You can't, how can you win against the thing, you know? So you, when you begin to see what it takes is real humility, to even to honor that fact that you can't win, that you can't get the upper hand of this thing. Then you can see, already you can see the shifting of the energy out of that egoic stance, can't you? Into a different way of working with this. And what all the way, any successful way has to include something that invites an integration of those two halves. So it has to be, and all of the paramis do that. See, that, that's the beauty of the paramis. The paramis aren't something that you practice. They're the very conduit of your practice itself. So patience, as I've just talked about patience, but I'll continue the theme is a parami, and it works so well because it creates no resistance at all to one side or the other of the issue. And so that way the vision, the wholeness of the vision can incorporate both, and you can get a sense of what is actually happening here. I think that's the truer definition of clear comprehension when the Buddha was talking about, didn't just talk about um, sati, but sati sampajana. Mindfulness is sati, sampajana is clear comprehension the clear comprehension of the whole of what's arising. Okay, all, thank you for this evening. Now, for those of you who... Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.